This Choircast podcast is brought to you by Go Wide, Reimagining the Landscape of Theology by Martha Elias Downey. This book invites readers to expand their theological, spiritual, and relational horizons by sidestepping the notions of hierarchy and verticality. Go Wide employs the lens of spaciousness to explore biblical stories, theological concepts, and the nature of God, showing how biblical narratives often disrupt the status quo. If you are looking for an accessible, inclusive, fresh take on an ancient course of study, pick up Go Wide, Reimagining the Landscape of Theology, now available on Amazon. All things eventually will come into union with God. So all beings will be saved, as it were, which means that in the final long view, in God's view, there is nothing that will not be redeemed. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, sexuality, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how to move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, and writers in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. Welcome to Holy Heretics. Hi, everyone. It's Gary Allen. Welcome back after a little break over the holidays to another episode of the show. And I don't think it's an accident that here we are at the start of the year and we are having this perennial conversation. Have you ever stopped long enough to ask the real question of faith deconstruction? And no, not the one about women in leadership or homosexuality or inerrancy or even Christian nationalism, but a deeper, more eternal question. Here's the one I'm thinking about. Just what is the goal of the spiritual path and how in this world do we attain it? I'll ask that again. What is the goal of the spiritual path and how in this world do we attain it? Or maybe put another way, what's the point of all this searching and seeking in the first place? So much of Christianity is well-disguised self-interest. It's high premium fire insurance for the afterlife. Is about me and my salvation, or at least my escape from hell. But once we deconstruct all that nonsense, what is left? Well, maybe everything. Maybe everything that matters. Maybe everything about becoming who you were created to be. Maybe everything about achieving intimate union with your creator. The problem is that here in the West, we lack the theology and the technology to facilitate this process, which is why I'm thankful not only for my friendship with today's guest, but also for his passion and his intellect in pursuing the ancient and often forgotten road we are all invited to walk as we make our way through this world and into the next one. Today, we are joined by modern monk and mystic Father Brendan E. Williams to remind us that we all came from God and one day we will return from God, that the end goal of spirituality isn't to escape hell, but to become divine. And if that already makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, I understand, but I do invite you to sit back and take in this deep conversation about what it really means to pursue the spiritual life. 
Father Brendan E. Williams is a priest in the Episcopal Church, a fully professed traditional monastic, and the prior of the Communion of the Mystic Rose. He was previously ordained as a Buddhist monk, and he holds terminal degrees in poetry and theology, an undergraduate degree in literary theory and folklore, and he is presently a candidate for the Ph.D. in religion. He gives lectures, presentations, workshops, and retreats on a variety of subjects, including ascetical theology and mysticism in Christianity and Indo-Tibetan traditions, meditation and contemplative practices, ancient Celtic spirituality and folklore, ecology and religion. He is also well-versed in both Eastern and Western images of the sacred feminine. Well, Father Brendan, welcome back to the show. You are a two-time offender on Holy Heretics. This is your second time, so welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. It's good to be back. Yeah, I feel like that makes you kind of a special heretic if you're able to get on here twice. So, I'm not, I don't know, you know. <laughs> well, I, I want to start by um, allowing our listeners to get to know you a little bit. Obviously, we know each other really well. Um, you are the prior of a monastic community, uh, the Communion of the Mystic Rose. And I think when most of us think about monasticism, we conjure up pictures of medieval piety and maybe old bald dudes in brown robes making Trappist beer, but that doesn't seem to be you. Um, as a mystic and a monk, what does life look like for you in the modern world? Yeah, well, I don't make beer, um, and I'm very much not bald, thankfully. So <laughs> <laughs> That is true. <laughs> No offense, Gary. <laughs> no, I was going to say, but I am. But, you know, go ahead. Whatever. <laughs> we can cut this out. <laughs> no, this is perfect. Um, <laughs> um, I said very much not bald just to clarify um, because I have really long hair. So I took the monastic path of growing all your hair out um, and never cutting it. So that's that's one style of doing um, the monastic tonsure. <laughs> so um, in terms of what life looks like, because at the moment I'm integrated into a ministry and it's a, a residential ministry, I'm, I'm chaplain of a retreat center and I'm also um, presiding priest of a small congregation that gathers on the site of this retreat center. So I have both a contemplative and an active life, I guess you could say. And those two things for me have become more and more integrated over the years. Um, there's been periods in my life where I had a more strictly contemplative life and was living away from everything off the grid and, and um, either in monasteries or roaming around on my own. And sleeping outside and doing this sort of old ascetical thing. <laughs> um, and I've had periods of doing that. And I think those were important in my spiritual growth. But at this point, um, it looks like a lot of solitude combined with an active ministry. That's something a little bit about uh, what it looks like. And when you say practices um, and contemplative practices, what, what do you mean by that? And, and what does that look like, maybe not only for you, but also for others in the, in the community? The process of formation in, let's say, 
in a traditional contemplative approach to monastic life is pretty complicated in most cases. And so you start off by getting shaped in preliminary practices. Some of those have to do with deeply exploring the kind of interior psychic reality and finding where your blockages, hangups, attachments, what we call passions are, um, and working on dissolving those in a, in a fairly active way, while at the same time cultivating virtue and um, practicing the virtues in an active way, for example, cultivating compassion and figuring out both exteriorly and interiorly how to really manifest that. So it's not just an idea, but it's something that you're actually feeling and living into more and more fully as an embodied experience. Um, and then there are many meditative practices that one would learn or should learn. I, I say should because unfortunately in a lot of Western monastic contexts, most of this has been lost. To go back to the summary of what I, I was describing as an optimal kind of monastic formation in my humble opinion, I think that those interior practices of getting out of the noise of the mind, setting aside the distractions of daily life, whether those are um, religious or secular, for long enough in a sustained enough way that one can begin to find some footing in real silence, what we call in the Christian monastic tradition, hesychia, the stillness of the heart or the fundament of our being. And to be able to really live into that fully is the key. And so what we do in our community and the, the kind of formation that I'm guiding folks in is giving practices tools that will allow someone over time to live more and more completely into that, which actually means a letting go rather than a grasping onto or a putting on something. It's more of a relaxing into hmm. the depth of what already is, but it doesn't look that way at first, you know, and, and there's a, you have to sort of learn to walk before you run as the saying goes some, a way that I often describe this and, the context of monastic formation specifically is that one really has to learn um, all the particulars of how to climb the mountain, how to ascend the path to get to the top before one can actually be strong enough in, in the spiritual life to jump off because ultimately one has to jump off the mountain. It's not just like, a you know, we ascend the mountain and then we sit on the mountaintop. Um, the mountain has to go like at some point. <laughs> and so, but, but you can't break the form or release the form until you are really secure in it. If one tries to completely let go away from form too soon, then one can fall into a, a really large pit. And so, so the monastic formation 
And actually, by the way, St. Benedict even mentions this in a certain way. He doesn't say it in these terms, but he actually says at the beginning of his rule, which is something a lot of people ignore, but he says that this is just a little rule for beginners. So this way of being formed in the daily rhythm of liturgical life and the cenobitic life and all those things, this is for beginners. Hmm. But once someone is spiritually mature enough, they need to go off on their own into solitude, let go of all these forms and enter real contemplation. So, so that's their implicit, even in the Western monastic tradition. It's just something that most people in the West have completely lost sight of. And, and, and because I think largely they've lost the understanding of what that means and they've lost a hold on the spiritual technologies that are actually required to do that safely and fruitfully. So what the way that I approach forming my monastics is to invite them um, into that solitude and into real contemplation without having to have them um, waste a lot of time and energy on a whole bunch of outward things that aren't actually in the end going to bring them a lot of benefit. And for those of us who maybe have just left religious fundamentalism and the word contemplation or transformation is is a little bit new, um, and also for people who are like, look, I, I still want to pursue the spiritual path, but I'm not necessarily uh, keen to be in church every Sunday, or maybe I'm uh, have been wounded by church, and that just feels like a place that isn't safe right now. Where would they start in a move toward being more contemplative? Because I feel like that a lot of us who grew up in evangelical Christianity, the focus was all about the externals, about the outward appearance, about uh, doing outward things like evangelizing or apologetics or um, you know, reading my Bible every day or prayer. And not that those things are bad, but you seem to be pointing to something different. Um, is there a good place to start for someone who wants to dip their toe in those contemplative waters? Yeah, I think a really good place to start is to begin with prayer and what prayer actually is in, in the deepest sense, because it's a point of entry that's already known and accessible to, to Christians. So we can just problematize that notion a little bit and then invite people into a deeper understanding of what prayer actually means, according to the, the early monastic tradition, particularly. And a way that I like to begin in this with folks is to share a quote from St. Evagrius of Pontus, who said, true prayer is the laying aside of thought. That's a totally different idea than how most Christians have been taught to think of prayer, right? Especially in the West, because generally people are taught in the church that prayer means interceding for someone or interceding on one's own behalf, as it were, right? Like asking for something that we want. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to pray using the kind of discursive faculties of mind, the intellect. I'm going to articulate ideas about what I want. So there are many problems with this, but the, the first problem and, and probably the most obvious is that it's reifying a false self. 
So it's saying, I want these things. And actually in the heart of the tradition, that's already a misstep. Hmm. So, which is not to say that um, intercessory prayer and the normative ways that we think about and practice prayer in the church are wrong. They're just very preliminary. That's all. So that's, that's sort of like the, the kindergarten level of prayer. And it's fine. We don't, you know, we don't harass kindergartners for being where they are. Right. <laughs> we, but, but once we have some maturity and can actually reflect on things a little bit more deeply and assuming, especially that we're people who are inclined to seek something that's transcendent or something that's going to actually bring some transformative benefit to our lives, then we can enter into this other expression of, of what constitutes prayer. And so what that points to, St. Evagrius is saying, is that the actual heart of Christian practice doesn't have anything to do with the thinking mind, with the discursive mind. Because if true prayer is the laying aside of thought, but and by the way, it's it's good to know that um, he's not saying true prayer is the debasing of thought or the rejecting of thought or um, the annihilation of thought or something like that. It's none of those things. It's, it's the laying aside or the sloughing off of thought, which implies a very different thing in the world of meditative and contemplative practice. So, so if true prayer is transcending the discursive mind, what that means is that we then need some techniques to allow us to drop into a state in which we're not being constantly strung up by the discursive mind, introducing all sorts of thoughts and fantasies and feelings and you know, analyzing perceptions and commenting on things and generally contributing to this reification of a false self. That's not going to get us anywhere ultimately in spiritual life. So once the ground is ready and, and we're prepared with a little bit of preliminary work, then we need to begin to cultivate a deep listening rather than a talking so step one is stop the stop listening to and encouraging and actively perpetuating the interior voice, hmm. which is running this monologue all the time, right? And and weaving stories and whether it's stories it's fabricating or something it's inherited, and and interpreting and reinterpreting, making a commentary on everything. We need to let that just be what it is, but not be involved in it anymore. Not believe any of these things that are arising any longer in the mind, but to learn to see them as ephemeral and transparent. That they're just like images on a screen that are coming and going. Um, and there's nothing wrong with them. They're part of nature, but they're also not pointing us to what's ultimately real. They're not pointing us to the divine ground, which is where we want to get. And 
so that we can realize that we're ultimately not different from that ground. Um, as St. Eckhart says, the ground of the soul and the ground of being are ultimately one and the same. But we have to experience that fully and directly, not just inherit that as an idea. And so the way to do it is to begin to lay aside all thought as St. Evagrius astutely said. So that's where I would recommend that people start, just start thinking about prayer in a different way. Hmm. Um, it's still prayer. It's just, it's a deeper mode of prayer. And this is, you know, somebody from the early tradition of the church that is um, articulating this and making this invitation. And so people can feel, I hope, um, Christians can feel secure in that. You know, this isn't something that's coming from outside our tradition. And that's a good for, for people that are, as you said, a little bit gun shy or nervous about these kinds of explorations or just uncertain about what to make of this kind of thing. I think that's a really good, stable, safe place to start. I love that concept of prayer being about silence instead of talking. And it reminds me of Jesus going out and praying all night. We see this obviously in the scriptures. And I can only assume that he wasn't talking the whole time, that he was indeed practicing this ancient form of, of listening and silence and solitude, which feels a little mystical to me. And I often hear religious fundamentalists kind of bemoan mysticism or the contemplative path as new age mumbo jumbo. But even in the biblical text, um, there is a hint of Jesus being this mystical spiritual person or on a contemplative path. Um, am I reading too much into that? No, I think that is there. And and there are a couple of key passages in the gospel text that the tradition has often highlighted to illustrate this point. So for, and, and particularly the monastic um, subset of the tradition. So for example, um, the instruction that Jesus gives in Matthew to um, go into your closet and pray in secret, right? that's often been interpreted as a teaching about interiority that actual prayer happens in an interior sense. It's not something that you do ultimately in an outward way. It's not about language. It's not about um, an, an outward expression of prayer. What's in, in old um, Christian spirituality speak is called ejaculatory prayer. Um, that that's not what's what's actually being referenced there or what's what Jesus is inviting people into, but rather an, a, a turning inward into the profound stillness of the heart. And and this this idea of praying, going into the closet and closing the door and being in secret has always pretty much from the beginning of the tradition been interpreted as a metaphor for the heart, for the deepest self. Um, and then we could also think about the gospel narrative where um, Mary and Martha are interacting with Jesus. He's in their home and Martha's laboring in the kitchen and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha, of course, is complaining and, and she 
is upset that her sister is not helping her in the kitchen. Um, and she's wanting the master to correct her and, and tell her to come and help in the kitchen instead of just sitting there like a log, not doing anything, being useless, you know. And, um, and Jesus says, Mary, you're, or Martha, excuse me, you're anxious about many things, but only one thing is needful. And Mary has found that one thing. She has found the better part, it says. And this is an indication that um, while we have to live daily lives in the world and we have to tend to things, um, the kind of uh, attachments and anxieties that often accompany our worldly endeavors are an inhibition to realizing what's true and what's ultimate. And that actually when we can stop and rest in quietude and real stillness and listen to the voice of divine wisdom, right? So this is a, Mary listening at the feet of Jesus is a kind of icon or metaphor for our listening for divine wisdom within, which is not words that we're going to hear. So what we're actually talking about when we say listening for the voice of divine wisdom is we're talking about listening for the voice of divine ground, which as St. Isaac of Syria helpfully points out, is silence. So St. Isaac says silence is the language of God. In addition to these uh, many places in the Gospels where it says that Jesus went apart, you know, there was a crowd and he taught, and then he went apart in solitude and, and, and prayed or meditated in the wilderness for a while. In addition to that, which is a nice cue and, and a good thing for us to, to have in the hopper, so to speak, I think these other little instances in the Gospels that have traditionally been utilized by monastics are also really helpful for, for framing um, our approach in a way that is um, adequately contemplative and also has real precedent in scripture. I also know that that you are a student of Alexandrian Christianity and the Alexandrian tradition. That's very new even to me. Um, I've been doing a little bit of a contemplative journey, but the notion of Alexandrian Christianity as opposed to maybe the more normative Western Christianity of, of the institutional church uh, seem to be at odds with one another and or differing or diverging paths. Um, can, you, can you share a little bit about that, that tradition um, historically, spiritually, and why uh, you have been drawn to that and have stayed on that path for so many years? You know, in the early church, there were different schools of thought. I think a lot of people have, this goes for both Western and Eastern Christians. A lot of folks who aren't scholars of religious history in this milieu, they tend to have the wrong assumption that Christianity was a monolithic institution from the beginning, or at very least that there was some totally cogent, coherent, um, ubiquitous set of ideas that constituted 
early Christian theology, and it's simply not the case. I mean, you you can if you read the canon of Scripture closely, you can see this expressed even there. But once you really start to dig into the history of the tradition, it becomes abundantly clear to anyone who's looking with um, clear eyes or a clear mind that there were many expressions of Christianity in the beginning, many different ideas about what Christianity was, what its purpose was, um, many different Christologies and what we call atonement theories. So explanations of who Christ was and why Christ was important and why Christ in the person of Jesus came at all or, or underwent the things that he did and how those affected the world. And so all these things that are foundational to Christianity, people often assume that there, there was one um, monolithic explanation for all this right from the start. And it's simply not the case. There were two, around the, the first few centuries of the church, there, there were two, we could say, primary schools of theology. One based in Antioch, which is often called the Antiochian school, and, and one based in Alexandria, the Alexandrian school. And then there's a whole wide spectrum of other expressions and permutations as well. But those are two kind of, for the sake of our conversation today, I think those are two good um, points just to name. And the Antiochian school tended to have a more literalist reading of scripture right from the beginning. In Alexandria, in Egypt, you had this really long history of I guess we could call it interreligious dialogue and philosophical exploration that began long before the coming of Christianity. So with the Hellenizing of Egypt in in the time of Alexander the Great and then subsequent to him in the Ptolemaic period in Egypt, where Alexandria really became this um this very uh, syncretic, dynamic hub of religious and intellectual activity. And so you have the Library of Alexandria that's developed, and you have all these different schools of philosophy that are converging there in this one city, and everyone's talking with, with one another, everyone's debating uh, and collaborating and, and borrowing things from one another. You have the Hermetic tradition, which is a kind of syncretic uh, Greco-Egyptian philosophical spiritual tradition. You have all the mystery schools, the Aesiac mystery school and the Mithraic mystery school. And you have the, the Greco-Egyptian um, magical tradition, which really in a large part came out of the um, Egyptian temple priesthood and 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 its way of kind of interacting with egyptian society and then you have platonism and neoplatonism and all these different traditions that are converging in this one place and you even have buddhists there in the 2nd century bce probably because hmm. the, the emperor ashoka sent buddhist missionaries to alexandria in that time period 
And so you have evidence of this Buddhist worldview coming into the fray as well in that already really rich milieu. And this is a very exciting dynamic kind of um, melting pot, as it were, uh, where all sorts of things are coming together and being syncretized. And a lot of Christian theology actually came out of this milieu. And um, Egypt is one of the earliest iterations of a church, right? St. Mark establishing the church in Egypt. That's very early. And so this, this, the influence of this, this arena of discourse really is pretty pervasive. However, as I said, different schools were codifying in different regions and the Alexandrian school was one that really um, drew from this pre-Christian heritage and in my view did so rightly and fruitfully. But of course, a lot of more fundamentalist Christians don't like that. Right? They didn't like it then and they don't like it now. <laughs> um, and I think a lot, a lot of that has to do with this mistaken assumption that I mentioned that somehow Christianity is not a syncretic tradition, that it fell whole from the sky. And, um, and there is such a thing as an actual original orthodoxy, which is totally false. There is no such thing. Mm -hmm. as an original orthodoxy. There's just a, a lot of competing ideas. And then some ideas become popular. Some ideas become expedient for political purposes, etc. And, and they end up becoming the norms. But um, that doesn't mean that they were always the norm, <laughs> right? And so this is just the, the, the vicissitudes or the tides of history and how they move. But in this Alexandrian school, because of that um, pre-Christian inheritance, there is a strong emphasis on um, the universality of Christ. So this idea that Christ, who is, in, according to Alexandrian Christology, Christ is the incarnation of wisdom, divine wisdom, Hagia Sophia. And Sophia is coming into the world in order to redeem human life or the human endeavor by bringing wisdom. And that doesn't just mean words, right? Like nice axioms that we can live by, <laughs> but it, it, it means in a, in a much deeper, fuller sense and in an embodied sense. But um, the Alexandrians thought that this speaking of wisdom in the world was also universal in the sense that before the incarnation in the person of Jesus, wisdom had always been speaking through the various philosophical and spiritual traditions of the world. And this happens to be something that we in Anglicanism today have, have taken on, which is a delight for me and, and one of the reasons why I feel comfortable in the Anglican tradition. Then there are other dimensions of Alexandrian Christianity too that, that were also controversial. That universalism was very controversial in the early church. And it caused a lot of people to say that some of the Alexandrian fathers, the patristics who were considered kind of the founders of this tradition, like St. Clement and St. Origen and um, 
St. Athanasius and St. Evangrius, who I quoted earlier, that these folks were heretics because they were espousing these ideas that were not in line with what was starting to congeal in the political institutional apparatus of the church at large as it began to form. And so um, some of these other ideas that were also marginalized were things like the doctrine of apocatastasis. And that is that all things eventually will come into union with God. So all beings will be saved as it were, which means that in the final long view, in God's view, there is nothing that will not be redeemed. So everything might be each spirit or, or each uh, sentient being might be on its own long, harried trajectory. But eventually all things will come to fullness, will come back to wholeness, which, which they originally arose from. And um, this was very problematic for a lot of people, especially people who wanted to utilize Christianity as a political weapon. Um, because you, it's hard to set up, set up a, an exclusivist kind of system if you have that sort of view. Right? And also, there is a particularly from origin, there was uh, an affirmation of this doctrine of rebirth, metempsychosis, as it is called in Greek, the transmigration of souls or of the psyche. So the idea there being that we don't just have this one lifetime and then um, we either go to heaven or hell after this embodied lifetime is over, or we don't just um, quote unquote fall asleep in the Lord uh, which means sort of a big nothingness until one day we're either resurrected or sent to eternal damnation. The Alexandrian approach says there are many, many, many lifetimes, um, an innumerable amount of lifetimes potentially that the psyche or the soul undergoes. And, and this is a process of refinement that we're called into throughout these lifetimes. So the path of wisdom is in part the path of being, um, or the, let me say it this way, the path of consciously refining the quality and depth of one's soul toward the ultimate aim of reunion with divine ground, with God, which is theosis. That's what we call deification or divinization or sanctification. Perfect sanctification means theosis. They're one and the same thing. Although sanctification is more of a spectrum. It's a process. The pinnacle of sanctification is what we call theosis or divinization. And that means that reunion in the totality where all illusion is shed and one does one no longer sees in a dualistic framework but one sees experiences and expresses from the place of non-duality which is the place that i mentioned 
St. Eckhart referring to wherein the ground of the soul and the ground of being itself are in fact unified and were never actually separate. So that's the aim then of this long cosmic journey of the soul is to eventually become fully sanctified and attain deification or theosis. So, Father Brendan, this idea of theosis or, dare I say, deification, which sounds a little bit strange, is that really the point of this entire spiritual journey? Yes, I would say that is indeed the point. And it's important to note that it's not just the point for the individual. It's the point for the whole creation. So, when we set out in pursuit of this in earnest, I think we have to cultivate the awareness that we're doing so for the sake of all beings, for the sake of all life, not for us. It is indeed the point to attain theosis, but with that very important qualification that it's not just the point to attain theosis for our so-called selves, but the point is to attain theosis for all beings. Mm. I love that. And and if I'm hearing you correctly, this notion tends to sort of um, deconstruct, if you will, or take away from this idea of Christian exceptionalism, that the only people that will attain theosis or make this long journey back to God are, are Christians. And again, I'm uh, assuming a lot here, but I'm also, I know you well enough to know that your own spiritual journey and your own spirituality is an integration and an incorporation of Western Christianity, Western spirituality, as well as the Eastern mindset and Eastern spirituality. Do you mind sharing just a little bit about what I've heard you describe as this golden thread that unites uh, some of the great spiritual traditions that, that lead us toward this path of becoming, in my words, who we were born to be and really returning fully uh, back to God? Well, the golden thread as a phrase and an image is, is usually used to describe a core of esoteric or mystical thinking that runs through the whole of Western thought kind of hidden, right? So, so that's often how that phrase is utilized. I would generally more commonly what I would call what you're pointing to, I think, is the perennial wisdom tradition, the Sophia Perennis, the, the, this idea that um, there is, even though religious traditions are diverse and we cannot and should not conflate them as systems, as systems of thought or systems of praxis, because they are truly diverse and they have different aims and ends um, and different means as well. But that being said, there is, in my view and in the view of many others, there is actually, when, when you study multiple of the world's great religious traditions in depth, and you get down to the kind of mystical substratum of what's really going on 
with the, the most serious practitioners in those traditions, you do find a lot of common experience and a lot of common language. So the idea would be, and this is, this is something that very much gels with the Alexandrian notion of um, a sort of sapiential universalism that I mentioned previously, that there is a universal character to this path of theosis, this path of sanctification. And you don't have to necessarily be in, in, in a particular given religious system to meaningfully pursue or realize the fruit of that path. And each tradition, if we affirm that divine wisdom has been speaking not just through the person of Jesus, but also through lots of contexts throughout a vast span of history on this planet. If we affirm that, then I think we also have to affirm that, of course, other traditions have value and we have a lot to learn from them. And I think in the Western world in particular, we definitely have a lot to learn from other traditions. And I can affirm that we do indeed have a great deal to learn from the East and from the Indic milieu particularly. And I think a lot of that has to do with tools, with spiritual technologies, which in the West we've, and in Christianity generally, with some very minor exceptions in Eastern Christianity, we've just lost touch with. We, we don't we don't have the right tools anymore. And so, you know, part of my work in, as you said, integrating these different systems has been to bring or attempt to bring some needful tools back to people in a Western Christian context, which will allow them to actually fulfill the totality of the aim of Christian tradition itself properly understood. If it's understood in adequate depth, this path toward theosis is the purpose of Christianity, right? But if you don't have the necessary spiritual tools, you can't attain that. Mm -hmm. right? And so, so we've been in some ways very, very handicapped. Um, and that has arisen, I think, from a variety of sociocultural historical factors but um the bottom line is that we've we've lost a lot of tools or in some cases there were just things we didn't have to begin with perhaps but in india you know for thousands and thousands of years their primary let's say if we're looking at, uh, on a kind of world scale their primary emphasis and contribution has been in the realm of spirituality, in the realm of meditative technologies and um, mapping the interior realms and understanding the nature of reality as we experience it as human persons. So this is an, an incredible wealth an incredible treasure trove of wisdom and practicable 
spiritual information that, frankly, I, I, in my view, we need. It doesn't mean we should or need to appropriate all of it, but it just means that we need to be in a very close dialogue with Indic traditions, broadly speaking. Um, in my own life and experience, that has been mostly with Vedanta and with um, Buddhism in various iterations, and particularly Vajrayana Buddhism, the yogic tradition. But we need to be in dialogue with these things as serious Christian spiritual practitioners so that we can begin to fill in some gaps that, that we have in our tradition and, and do some healing and, and repairing of the fabric of our tradition so that it is, again, whole and strongly woven and can carry us all the way on the journey. Mm. I love that. Um, it speaks to actually an experience I had yesterday in church where I realized that, unfortunately, um, a lot of the experience of co the comings and the goings of church for, for us these days feels like what I've heard you say is sort of the, the brunch and bingo crowd. It feels like a, a, a social club, um, a lot of events, a lot of activities, a little bit of community but very little deep transformation, very little disciple-making. And it reminded me of a quote from your book, Seeds from the Wild Verge, this sort of like, what are we doing here? Um, and is anything happening? And I'm going to read this to you, and I would love your response. Uh, you write, D.H. Lawrence wrote in 1924, The adventure has gone out of Christianity. We stand now in the final hours, perhaps the final moments of its twilight, and the adventure having long since passed out of it, there seems to be very little left worth preserving. And so you're hinting at the notion of a journey of an adventure that Christianity has lost. I was experiencing yesterday in church the sort of, why are we here and what are we really doing? Mm. In in your mind, what is worth preserving in the church today? And how do we recapture some of this adventure and the journey back to God? Because I do feel like it's lacking. And in, in even, even in the Episcopal Church that I absolutely love, I love the liturgy, I love the tradition, I love, I love the Anglican tradition, but how do we recapture some of this and what is worth preserving? Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are great questions. I, I think it's worth preserving the liturgical and sacramental apparatuses of church tradition and, and the sort of fundaments of our Catholicity, those of us who are Catholic Christians. Um, and I mean that broadly, of course. So that includes Anglicans and Romans and Eastern Orthodox. Right. Um, I think the, the liturgical and sacramental traditions are really important as supports for the interior life, not as replacements for it. So I think we can, we can reframe what we have and, and preserve it in a way that's, that's thoughtful, intelligent, and, um, 
and also have the courage to curate what we're preserving according to what's actually beneficial for the spiritual life and what makes sense in our time and place. Um, there are a lot of um, cultural, political um, hangups that the church has inherited from the first century and and has kept kicking around all these hundreds and hundreds of years just because it's written down in scripture somewhere. Um, and we need to, I mean, the Episcopal Church has been very good about this, but a lot of other Christians, unfortunately, haven't been so good about this. But we need to just let go of some of that stuff and just name name it for what it is. This this isn't relevant to us anymore. You know, some some of the social doctrines that St. Paul offers us, for instance, in his epistles, um, some of that material just isn't relevant to us. So we, we don't need to we don't need to cling to that kind of stuff. I'm not saying we flush it down the toilet, but we should we should read it intelligently and with a discerning heart and mind. Mm. Um, and I think you you asked, you know, what what is the point of doing all this? Why are we here? And to be sure, if if we're here for a social club, then we're way off base and we need to go back to the beginning and start over <laughs> and, and ask ourselves the question um, of, you know, what the point of all this really was at the beginning. Um, so, so that, that needs to all die away I mean, all the social club stuff and, and the, um, you know, privileged elite and, uh, the networking and all that, th those aspects that have accrued onto church tradition, that stuff needs to just die away. And I think it is being burned away gradually now that the institution is failing. Um, but we have to preserve, I think, the profound symbol sets, the sacred imagery, the gospel teachings, the fundamental teachings, which, again, if properly understood, are teachings about how to live a spiritual life in the world. Um, and, and we need to preserve the sacraments and liturgical traditions, as I mentioned. But we need to preserve all of this with a clear view on its actual utility and its actual purpose and understand and live the contemplative exploration that Christianity invites us into at the deepest levels. Understand that and live that as the heart, the beating heart of what we're doing, because that's what's going to lead us to theosis. That's what's going to allow us to fulfill the whole aim of what it means to be Christian to begin with. We just celebrated, you know, um, well, we celebrated the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, and we also just celebrated the third Sunday of Advent, which is called Rose Sunday, which traditionally has a, a special Marian valence. And one of the things I was pointing out to folks on Sunday was that um, 
Mary is the supernal icon, according to the ancient tradition. Mary is the supernal icon for the process that we are called into, all of us. And she is a living embodiment of this process of sanctification toward theosis. According to, now this isn't in scripture, but, you know, that doesn't matter. I mean, we don't, <laughs> people who resign Christianity only to what's in scripture are, are like people who are sitting at a huge banquet table and angrily saying, I will only have this one crumb of bread that's on my plate. <laughs> I won't look at or talk about anything else that's on this banquet table. So don't approach me with it. <laughs> right? I mean, that's kind of what it's like in my opinion. This is why in, in Anglicanism, we say we, we equally weight the tradition and we equally weight reason, our own critical faculties, our ability to analyze things and to pursue our own direct experience through an experiential epistemology. So those things we weight equally with scripture. Mm. And this is in keeping with Eastern Orthodoxy as well. So at any rate, um, you know, the tradition says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, after the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of the master, went on to, in some meaningful way, lead the community, the, the, the nascent um, Christian community, which was called the way, right? And she, she was a very, very integral figure, spiritually guiding all the disciples and, and other devotees. And then at her dormition, the, her passing out of the body, she attained resurrection just like her son had done, just like the master. So mm. she attained the body of light, the resurrection body like him, and then ascended, was taken up in the body of light into the heavenly realms. And then subsequently appeared to one of the apostles, uh, St. Thomas, appeared to him in the body of light, just as Christ had done after the resurrection, you know, appearing in the resurrection body where it's, it looked tangible, but he could walk through walls and all of that, right? In the same exact way, the Holy Mother attained the highest end of sanctification, theosis and attain the body of light. And so this is a good reminder that this is the call that's placed on all of our hearts, on our lives, if we really want to enter into the depth of what it means to be a Christian. And this kind of invitation is very much worth preserving, right? Because it's down to the fundaments of the perennial wisdom tradition. We're talking now about the heart of what it means to be human, the heart of reality. We're, we're in that zone of deep exploration of what is actually going on around here in this human existence, you know, and asking the real 
profound questions and applying technologies, applying tools to allow us to experientially answer those questions for ourselves. That's the whole purpose of religion, period. You know, anything less than that is a travesty. It, it's just a, a political arm or a social club or whatever it is, a combination of those things. Um, but it's not real religion. It's not fulfilling the real purpose of religion. And so if we can get back to that heart and remember the meaning of all of these symbols that we have, these precious narratives, these, the, these sort of um, – narratives of a mythic dimension and the the es more esoteric valence of meaning in the gospel sayings and if we can get back to the essence of what all this is pointing to and really reclaim or remember right to put the members of the body back together <laughs> to remember what this is all about then there's nothing more worth preserving right there's nothing more worthwhile than that that's that's um, then a highly efficacious spiritual tradition, which can greatly benefit the world. And God knows that's what the world needs. So all of that is very much worth preserving. And all that is not part of that or supporting or contributing to that is very much worth forgetting. It's very much worth casting off and putting into the fire. That's my humble opinion on that. <laughs> well, I think we could talk for a couple of hours and I was reminded of why you've been on the show twice. So I think we're going to have to do a, a third time because I would love to dive in. I know we talked about it, but dive into that whole notion of that path that Jesus took, the path that Mary took and, and how do we get on that path ourselves and what yeah. might that look like for, for us, as you said, that is the point. That That's the whole point of all this. So, Father Brendan, thank you so much um, for people who want to learn more about you, uh, grab your book and or connect to the community. Uh, where can they find you online? Sure. So they can find my personal website at brendanelliswilliams.com. And then they can find the monastic order at mysticrose.org. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I will put all that in the show notes. And again, thanks for being on. This was a, a deep conversation and that's what we're here for. So I really appreciate you helping to introduce us to the contemplative way, to the varying strains of Christianity that existed in ancient times and maybe have been passed by today and inviting us to pursue that adventure again, inviting us to pursue that long journey back to God. It's, it's just always great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you very much. Many blessings. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you need more resources to guide your spiritual journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, resources, and our free ebook on faith deconstruction. And before we go, will you consider joining us on Patreon? 
Your partnership allows us to continue creating this sacred space for seekers like you. By becoming a patron, you gain early access to each podcast episode, as well as premium content, and an exclusive invitation to join our monthly online community. Simply sign up at patreon.com slash holyheretics. See you next time.